What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everyone, and welcome to So Very Wrong About Games, a board gaming podcast about board games. I am your co-host, as ever, the prophet of rage, Mark Bickney, and with me, as always, as ever, is the hype machine, Michael Walker. How you doing, Walker? Living the daydream, Mark. (laughs) Don't know what that means. So, this is a board gaming podcast about board games. We're going to talk about the games we played last week. We're going to talk about the news and why it doesn't matter. And then we are going to review our feature game this week, which is Darwin's Journey. So, Walker, what'd you play last week? Well, today, Mark, we played Lacrimosa. This is a game published by Devia Games and designed by Gerard Asante, Fernand Renelius. And you are trying to be, or trying to convince people that you're (laughs) chummy chum with Mr. Mozart. And so you get the recognition of his very last requiem. So my understanding of the theme is that there's a lot of historical detail here that the game, of course, glosses over it being a relatively standard Euro game. Uh, My understanding is, is that there's a whole story that in part, I think, was generated by Mozart's widow, uh, Costanz. This is actually part of what happens in the movie slash play Amadeus. There was, you know, this legend of a, of, a, of a robed figure that and Mozart never saw his face who commissioned this requiem, which might or might not have been for himself or his dead father. It's tough to tell. Anyway, uh, he died before completing it. He had just the last bit of music that Mozart ever wrote was the the the, the lacrimosa of this requiem. It was completed later by a guy named Sussmeyer. Uh, it was commissioned by a guy named von Walzig, and the best part is von Walzig tried to pass it off as his own. It was actually a, a deliberate effort by Constanz to put up public performances of the last bits of Mozart's work to make clear that it was. That's how you did it. I mean, <laughs> you put the public stamp on it by performing it publicly and say, by BT dubs, this was Mozart, not von Walzig. Apparently von Walzig had a habit of commissioning stuff and pretending it was his. That's uh, weak sauce, I gotta say. <laughs> it's a good investment. 
<laughs> yeah, exactly. It pays off twice. Anyway, I know very little about the overall uh, music history of the setting, but I do at least appreciate the fact that the framing is taking a slightly comic version of the standard Euro version of you are uh, some rich family trying to impress a noble. In this case, you're a rich patron trying to convince the widow that you were really the realist patron of Mozart. I thought that was at least vaguely amusing. What did you think of the game, Walker? I I very much enjoyed it. gave me gave me very much of a revive feel. Right, it's the same sort of thing. You're gonna they're multi-purpose cards. You're gonna be using the top of the ones you choose, and then the bottoms of something else. And so you have to make this decision on which ones are going to go where. And money's tight. Resources are tight. Very interesting game. I actually prefer, the, the specifically the card play element of Lacrimosa, I prefer to Revive. The rest of the game, I think I prefer Revive, but the card play element on the top half is one action or more actions later if you get improved cards. And at the bottom half of the card is some kind of income. And every turn, of which there are four and around, you slot a card into the top of the beautiful folding dual layer boards. And the, the top card will determine your action. And the bottom card will determine what you will start the next round with. But the thing that I find tense and difficult, or sometimes easy, case depending, is in doing so, you are giving up an action. In Revive, usually you're trading off one kind of resource for another kind of resource, which is fine. But in the context of Lacrimosa, you are committing to doing less of a certain kind of action. At the very beginning of the game, that was particularly difficult. There's deck building involved because you can buy new cards. They necessarily replace older cards. Your deck never grows in size. You can buy other, other cards which don't go into your deck but give you other opportunities later on. For a game where you're only doing 20 actions over the course of things, you actually get a fair bit accomplished in terms of the structure of Lacrimosa. And uh, the overall themelessness aside, uh, well, its connection to the theme is somewhat tenuous, as to be expected from the, 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 the general genre and idiom of Euro games. But I enjoyed it as well. I made a hash of the rules explanation. So I think I would want to do a full reread of the, of the rules before I taught it again. And so I apologize for that. So I'm not, in, I don't think we're in a full position to give uh, our, our final opinions, but since everyone at the table enjoyed it, I'm sure we'll be able to get it, get it to the table again. Well, to get back to the cards, I can see where the different sort of weights went between this and revive, right? You can have a game like revive where the opportunity cost of the cards isn't that great mm -hmm. because they all do the same sort of thing, but the, when the, they, both cards are acquired through a sort of a, a, a tableau or a draft on the side. Yes. And so when a new one gets flipped up, like we said, it's it's very, there are very low things. You either get resources or get resources. So there's not going to be big payoffs on a on a random card that comes up. Unlike Lacrimosa, that's true. Where the cards are amazing, and you might give someone else a huge opportunity by flipping up a card they really needed. Well, yeah, the, the cards are far more central in Lacrimosa as well. The only way you do actions in Lacrimosa is through card play. In Revive, you have a whole bunch of other things to do. And in fact, all the ways you get points, all the ways you spend to get new resources are driven by non-card actions. But yes, in the sense that there's a top half and a bottom half and you're for the rest of the round giving up one half of the cards when you're playing them, it is very, very reminiscent of Revive. It's pretty, it's nice, it's got a standard a variety of Euro-type things. Not a track to be seen, that much I kind of appreciated. It has a currency that you're going to lose over the course of the round, so there's a little bit, I think, the, the difference between 
very strong play and fumbling about in the dark play is going to be setting up future rounds using that bottom half card resource element because those resources tend to be ephemeral and disappear. There's a lot of clever stuff going on. As I say, I, I wish I'd done a better job of getting the rules right the first time, and I look forward to trying it with 100% right. And that's Lacrimosa. Tapple Walker. It's all about Tapple. It's all about Tapple. I mean, there are other games. We've played other games, but basically... Well, that's just to keep the show going. <laughs> right? Well, no, it, it's more... The, those, these are the fillers between rounds of Tapple, true, which is true. the real game playing. I, I, Tapple's great. Tapple's great. And if you want to check out Tapple, we played at the end of the stream. We, Might as well. <laughs> we, we, we streamed uh, Force of Pangea this week. I'll talk about that in a moment. But at the very end, we played a couple rounds of Tapple. So if you want to check out what it's all about. I thought it was poor Force of Pangaea. You were very, Force very... of Pangaea. That's exactly okay. what I said. Oh, I'm very sorry. I must have misheard. What category did you have in Tapple this time, Walker? Oh, you expect me to remember? I think we had historical figures for one. Oh, cool. I'd be all over that. We had around like a table full of video gamers. Right, <laughs> we had one of those video games, and people were just drawing a blank. It was so funny. <laughs> yeah, it was rough. At one to point, watch. Louis was just fumbling, thinking of major media properties, on the hope that there was some video game adaptation. Like at one point, he said Jumanji, and the table shrugged and said, "Well, there's probably like an NES game of Jumanji somewhere. I guess okay, fine." It was embarrassing for all of us. None of us could really think of anything. It was so weird. That's Tapple. Tapple. Let's talk about Forest of Pangaea. You might have heard me talk about it four seconds ago. <laughs> so this is designed by Thomas Franken and published by uh, Pangaea Games, Mark. You'd think, I think this is their one and only game so far. So it was a Kickstarter. It fulfilled very recently. And it has sort of a Cascadia kind of feel. Because instead of having the like the goals for the whole game and you're placing animals to try to fill fulfill those goals, these are sort of like a moving sideboard of of goals that are coming there's three different goals there's either building a really tall tree or building around a tree or building a path between two trees so we'll say you know go to ice and water type terrains and you get to count the trees and they're allowed to be anyone's trees as long as your trees are at the beginning and at the end i see is this tiling no, the well, the tiles are already all out at the beginning. You're placing trees mostly. You're you're placing the seeds, and then there's a growing phase, and then all your seeds turn into trees, and you're moving a god around. There's these lakes positionally placed, and so you move your god around, and your god can also plant trees. Very interesting game. I like the fact that the god blocks other gods from going to that lake, so you can sort of sometimes protect, but then you have to pull your god back to score points. So it's... Very interesting trade-offs on your turn, so you're either going to, you know, not use your god to do interesting stuff, so you can pull back and and score one of the cards. I like the fact that you have one private card and the other three cards that are face-up, anyone can score, so there's this tension as, the, you know, the board starts to fill up with trees and, and more routes become available. You know, who's going to score that first? Are you going to take a mm. short route to try to get rid of that card so someone else doesn't build a long route? There's also knowing with four players that all the cards are in play. So you know that there's going to be one of each type of card. So you can start building, you know, the, your wind, a wind tree really high, hoping that the wind high tree card is going to come out soon. Stuff like that. Looking forward to going back to it. That is Force of Pangaea. Got to play more games of Wizards of the Grimoire, or as Walker calls it, Bookie Bookie Pew Pew. This is a review copy we got from the publishers, but we didn't play on that review copy. We actually played on a copy that a friend of ours got independently purchased from the designer at a con, and he is a big, big fan, so we played a couple of games back-to-back. -back. Now, 
Great fun, Wizards of the Grimoire. It is basically a challenge to build your own combo and effectively kill your opponent before their combo is able to kill you. I have two minor reservations. One of them is, in all the games of Wizards of the Grimoire that I've played, it has always been a difference of one turn. Now, the start player hasn't always won. The, sec- the second player uh, frequently wins. But it has never been... I've never seen any blowouts. Now, I don't demand that every game have blowouts. It's just sometimes I get a little bit concerned that games might be a little bit too balanced, as it were. The game is so short. And if you have cards that are a little unbalanced like that, that will push someone ahead, then it's going to be that sort of random of the draw. You know, that's just happened to come up in that person's turn. They grab it and, you know, I mean, it'll offset the balance. So where, ah, whereas... but au contraire, the pro- this actually relates to the second problem, which is that in both games, the player that built the clever combo lost. So there were instances in both games where a player built like, ah, the spell really synergizes with this other spell. This triggers, I get to do this other thing, and this other thing triggers, and this other thing just right. They were the ones that lost they in both took instances. Too long, Mark. <laughs> no, it wasn't. No, the combos actually accelerate how the game works. It's not that I need A to trigger, and then B to trigger, and then C to trigger, and then magic. It's A facilitates B, which in turn facilitates A and C, and then C facilitates the rest, and then they took all too do long damage. To get them all out. No, that's not. You, you're not listening. They lost though. That's not. Right? So you're not you're not listening. Locker, you're not listening. You're not listening. You weren't there and you're not listening. These are minor concerns though, in the face of the fact that it is a very quick, very compelling game. Despite the fact that there are tons of different card effects. I will give credit, and this is going to contrast with uh, another small card game that I'm going to talk about later. Uh, We've never had any serious rules questions about how the cards work, about how the timing works, about how various things trigger, and there's lots of new and interesting things to happen. Like, seldom is it the case that there are spells that do this, but I think it's just one in the deck where it's like, do this much damage, period. And (laughs) that is what it does. There's a whole bunch of interesting effects. I just have some concerns about how deep the opportunity for skilled play is. That's all. I enjoy playing it. I don't feel like it's random. I'm not saying that it's a question of better spells come off the top. It's not that I can look at a tableau of 10 spells and think immediately, oh, well, that's the unbalanced one and that's the unbalanced one. It's just that based on the fact that, number one, the winner is always one turn ahead of the loser and no more. And number two, in my recent playings, the combo that I looked at the table and said, oh, that's a very clever combo, turned out to lose. Despite that, I'm happy to keep playing. Wizards of the Grimoire, excellent two-player game. Speaking of a card game, Mark, we got to play Sentinels of the Multiverse. This is designed by Christopher Bedell, Paul Bender, and Adam Roberto. Robotaro. Robotaro. I almost got a name right today, Mark. Almost. Almost. This is an older game, Mark. But we've played it lots. This is put out by Greater Than Games, and it's like an alternate universe of all sorts of superheroes, and it's play a card, use a power, draw a card, and you're done. We happen to get a very good combo against a certain villain that we have. It's one of these games that just shouldn't work because you (laughs) have 30 or more different heroes, you have 15 or more different villains, and then you have 20 or more different environments, and you can just take all of these randomly, and somehow they all work together sometimes. And this time... Yeah, sometimes, yeah. And this time it worked to our definite benefit. Here's a question, though, Walker. You are an avowed enemy of deck milling. You have stated repeatedly that that this is a mechanism whereby the goal of the game in either competitive or cooperative context is to just go through a stack and try to find the thing you're looking for. Well, if it's the pure, if it's the only 
reason oh my, of the game. Oh my goodness! In this case, this was the only victory condition. Well, it was, that, it so was, it the was, villain that we had, Walker. Okay. The villain that we had was misinformation, and misinformation is untargetable and undamageable until such time as three of the right cards come off her deck, and uh, two of us. On the reg, we're just burning through the deck, looking look at the top card, look at the bottom card, be able to manipulate these things until we got those three cards. And we got those three cards out real quick. And as a consequence, the rest of it followed in short order. And uh, that's what deck milling is to me. I don't object to deck milling necessarily, but you do. And so I was just wondering what your thoughts were on this particular deck well, milling type enemy. That's exactly. That just happens to be her stick. And you may not have any characters like we did that that do that. And you might get lucky they might be near the top, or you might just have to slog through her cards to get them. So are you giving it a pass just because it's one blip amongst an overall system? Or are you saying that this doesn't even run afoul of your deck milling objection at all? Not not so much, because in other games, you're deck milling to get... I know in this one, you're getting to get certain cards, but yeah. it's, it's just a different feel. This one is just to get cards out. Got it. No generalization, just vibes. Understood. Just right. Well, in the other ones, you're you're deck milling in order to get to to discard them or whatever. This ones you want to get them into play. So, I don't know. It's it's just slightly no, different. No, there's a distinction without a difference. Yeah. So, Sentinels of the Multiverse has a new edition. We're not going to bother. We have the giant black monolith. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't think the gameplay changes enough to warrant getting the newer edition. Yes. If I had confidence that it were say substantially less wordy. And that may be one thing. A lot of people complain about the wordiness of various cards. I don't mind. I think it's all right. It's manageable. But it certainly is challenging to some players and some people regard... So, again, the, the term fiddly is, turned, is tossed around a lot. It means different things to different people. Some people regard Sent Sentinels as very, very fiddly. From what I've seen of the new edition, although it might be less burdensome in terms of those things, it is nonetheless at its core Sentinels of the Multiverse, and so I'm not inclined yeah. to go out seeking the new edition. Because we played it so much, right? If someone else says, you know, I want to get in Sentinels of the Multiverse, I would steer them more towards the newer one. Oh, yeah, the one in print, yeah. picking up an older one because of, like, what you well, said. Unless, Everything's uh, more clear. Well, unless it was unless it were the case that on the secondary market they could get a large quantity of things at a reduced price. Like, if somebody could get the all-in black monolith at a, at a reasonable I suppose. cost, then that would definitely be my recommendation. Anyway... It is a recurring favorite in our group. Huey just spontaneously declared, I'm feeling like something lighter and co-op-y. And so Sentinels of the Multiverse seemed like an obvious choice. Good time was had by all, even though, as Walker says, sometimes the specific combinations lead to a particularly easy time or a particularly hard time. Monolith ain't so light. Oh, yeah. It's, it's really hard. light co-op is a very heavy co-op. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my goodness. Played a bunch of games of So Clover. Now, let me tell you something, listeners. I don't want to make people too, too jealous. But uh, there's a particular event locally whereby used games can be had at an absurd price. I'm probably going to go into more detail about it later. But so Clover, uh, we were able to get a uh, second-hand copy. Still with the cards in Shrink, though. And this is the word game by François Ramey and Reproduction. This is kind of sort of, to my mind, a, a, a kind of a fellow traveler with just one, in that it is a co-op word connection game where everyone gets to give clues and everyone gets to interpret clues. This was a particularly frustrating match because we went from a very, very successful round of So Clover to a very frustrating one. Now, Walker, I gave a clue that was tentacly. Tentacly. Tentacly, which may be a neologism, but it's a word now. And I got to watch as in frustration as my colleagues, my partners, or at least they said they were my colleagues and partners, but clearly they were wolves in sheep's clothing, consistently took a card that had octopus on it. 
and wouldn't put octopus next to tentacly. What was I supposed to do? I practically like, what is more tentacly than an octopus? A squid? There, squid was not on the same card. Oh. That would, if squid and octopus were on the same card. If, if, if there was some other, yeah, if squid had been there, sure. Dr. Octopus, maybe? I don't know, but uh, he too is basically an octopus. Anyway, it's true. So frustrations aside, so Clover is a lot of fun. There's a certain physicality to it. Some people have problems remembering their orientation of cards because the way so Clover works is everyone gets a random orientation of cards, writes clues in order to connect the cards together, and then they're supposed to wipe them. Sometimes people have a great deal of difficulty remembering it, and that's fine. Uh, but fortunately, everyone possesses magical supercomputers with cameras in their in their pockets, and so the general recommendation is to take pictures. One person at the table did have this paralyzing moment of doubt where it's like, I, I can't remember where my cards were, and that's a bit of a problem. But I really enjoy So Clover. I probably prefer just one, but I'm very, very glad to have So Clover for the uh, extra variety. So now I have new dry erase markers that can get completely dried out. And or new pieces of plastic that can become forever stained, no matter how much I wipe them. That is So Clover by François Ramey and Repo Production. I get to play Spots with some listeners on Board Game Arena. This is designed by Alex Haig and John Perry, Justin Vickers, put out by CMYK Games. We have a review copy sent to us by the publisher, although Board Game Arena obviously uh, refuses steadfastly to bribe you. It's, I'm waiting for the check. I know. It's coming. They promised. That's not true. It's not true. It's funny, though. All right. So in this game... It's less funny if people think we're corrupt. You are uh, trying to fulfill sort of recipes on dogs with dice. And oh, not recipes. Come on. Uh, They're uh, literally spots. On the, come on. It's right there on spots. the title. It's on the, it's on the tin. Say, it's this card needs a two, a three, and a four. You might as well say, you know, you put radishes and cucumbers on the dice. It's You need those. Ah, but the two, the three, and the four are in a much more adorable pupper. It's true. So you start with three and you can have up to six and you can have as many as six on the go or you can fill some up and take a turn to score those so you don't lose those dice because if you ever fill up your dog house with seven or more pips then you lose all of the dice that you haven't locked in and there's all sorts of different actions that become unavailable until they're all taken yeah, it's fundamentally about push your luck. Yeah. You can go for more dogs at once, and that kind of increases your flexibility, but the real power move is to fill up all your dogs at one time, and that allows you to effectively take a bonus turn, more or less, and that's very difficult with more dogs. Anyway, that balance I find consistently interesting. Yep, yeah, it's a great game. Check it out. Board Game Arena. Spots. Played a quick card game of Hemlock Dark Promenade. This is a review copy sent by the designer. Sorry, so what was the name again? Hemlock Dark Promenade. Wow, okay. But I have a better one later on, but okay. Better one. Oh, better name, yeah. It's, okay. It's a good one. Designed by John Cloudus at Smallbox Games. John Cloudus has a substantial audience, and Smallbox Games has a lot of output. John Cloudus has been previously covered on this podcast for his one of his non-Smallbox games, namely Mezzo, which was the Mesoamerican troops on a map game of weirdness that was quite interesting, if a little overlong. Uh, so... His primary modus operandi is indeed small box games, a single deck of cards that comes in a tuck box. And his most famous offering in that context is probably Omen Reign of War, which has now been in a whole bunch of editions that have kind of become expanded and it's no longer now a single box of cards. I played Omen Reign of War, very interesting game, and very much in a uh, similar vein as Hemlock Dark Promenade in that it's a lot about overpowered special powers 
and deploying a lot of cards that seem like they're over the top, but your opponent has access to the same cards, so you don't really know what's going on. That having been said, it's it's significantly more small and constrained than Omen Reign of War. You have uh, basically a 3x3 three three grid of territories that you're fighting over. One player gets to play cards of the columns, and one player gets to play cards of the rows, so there's a little bit of asymmetry there interacting with the different setup of the terrains. And as you win terrains, they give you special powers to activate on your turn. But by and large, by the end of the game, most people will have access to most of them. But knowing when to use them and how to use them is, is, is actually quite difficult. I found it very, very tricky to use them to best effect. And as you play characters to influence the various things, they trigger uh, a whole bunch of weird and wild special powers and stealing a whole bunch of things, which is very, very par for the course for a two-player tug-of-war card game, which is what Hemlock Dark Promenade is. It, there's not a tug of war in the sense of the things you're fighting over directly, but a lot of resources and a lot of items are just stolen back and forth, and you can't expect to hold on to anything for too long. I did enjoy it. I thought that the first two rounds were a little bit less important than they needed to be because I, everything changes so quickly. The, 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 the territory on which you stand is so unstable, and things can be stolen with such ease, but they can be stolen by both sides. The first two rounds didn't feel like they mattered a whole heck of a lot, because things can entirely change in a given round, so at that point, why play three rounds? I think the game could probably be redesigned as a one-round game or a two-round game without losing too much, and on top of that, there were a couple cards where the text effects didn't make a whole lot of sense. There were some disagreements between myself and Dr. Contra about how to interpret a variety of cards, again, contrasting that with, with Bookie Bookie Pew Pew, and unfortunately, there's no fact or there's no... Uh, I, I wasn't able to find any additional rules uh, relevant, so we actually had to resort at one point to the fabled Games Workshop rolling off oh for... Yeah, it, it, it's just the case that we, we both had different interpretations of the card. Both of them were plausible, and uh, so that, that, that's what happens. So there have been a number of games bearing the title Hemlock for... John Cloudus and Small Box Games, uh, starting with the original Hemlock in 2011. But this is the Hemlock Dark Promenade from 2017. My previous experience with Small Box Games is that I had heard that one of the Pod Boys was very, very disappointed that there was a run of print-and-play-only versions of Small Box Games, and he was a huge, huge fan. And so, out of an uncharacteristic act of kindness, I actually printed them out for him because he didn't have a printer, and then sent him printed-out versions of these games, and uh, his thanks was to basically comment on how I had cut the cards out unevenly. So, um, he's dead to me. That is Hemlock Dark Promenade, a very clever, quick card game by John Cloudus Small Box Games. Lastly for me, I've played a bunch more of Hanamakoji. This is designed by Kota Natayama and published by Emperor S4 Games. I played with Sam, the OG sweaty tryhard. I know we're not supposed to use that anymore, but there's nothing... He self-identifies. Yeah, there's nothing that, you know, is the essence of board game duel than that. Um... <laughs> So this is very much a game of inches, Mark. You you are you're discarding cards that you feel that are going to be troublesome because you always have to put out offers of either, you know, two groups of two pick one or a group of three, they pick one, you get two. Yes, it's constantly agonizing I split you choose. Yes, it's one of these things and you just say, Well, these cards are gonna be a problem in the end, so you just sort of, like, get rid of them. It's telling, yeah, I remember that very distinctly. The most comfortable feeling action in Hanamikoji is the one where you're just burning cards out of the game. <laughs> just so. And it, and it's, like I said, and you, you say, it's very much, I'm going to put these cards out, and it's just going to keep the game neutral, because that's what you want. I'm like, one ahead, <laughs> and it's it's wasting a turn, 
I very much enjoy it. Played a bunch of games. Hannah Makoji. Play the game of Vengeance, Roll, and Fight. This is the real-time dice-rolling game by Gordon Kalea, Norley Lubbers, and David Tsertze, published by Mighty Boards. This is probably my favorite quick real-time game, and it is also my favorite roll-and-write, especially because it doesn't feel like a roll-and-write. <laughs> roll-and-writes tend to be defined by a stately pace, and even if they're quick, and no player interaction, whereas Vengeance, roll and fight, you're frantically rolling as quickly as possible because you know that everyone else is, and then you look over in horror and see that there are no dice left because you took too long, even though it felt like no time had passed at all. And then, and then, Walker, you get to murder people. Apparently, Old Boy, greatest movie of all time, is going to be back in theaters in August with a new remaster. I'm nice. looking forward to it on the topic of Vengeance. Because Vengeance, of course, both Vengeance and Vengeance, roll and fight are evocative of revenge movies with tons of blood and tons of guts. This is, although it, nothing is graphic or explicit, the theming is very, very much adult in terms of what's going on and what, what you're doing. Speaking of graphic revenge movies, uh, a Swedish gold miner gets his gold taken by... Sisu. Yeah, can't wait. Looks fantastic. I am familiar with the Sisu already. Do you know why, Walker? Because you watched it. No, because oh. of Combat Commander, the game you keep making fun of because you hadn't heard of it before. The Sisu are featured prominently in several scenarios. Gotcha. Very much looking forward to it. Very much a vengeance sort of one man. Yes. <laughs> just goes through the entire... Well, one person, a lot of good, uh, a lot yeah, of the, sorry, the, the good later uh, vengeance uh, style movies have indeed had female protagonists, which is great. And of course, there are lots of female protagonists in Vengeance Roll and Fight. There is, of course, the constant reminder, which is a sad truth about the world, but we have to adapt. Some people just do not like real-time games. They find it, they find that kind of stress, that kind of tension, unpleasant, which is an interesting counterpoint to Hannah Mikoji, right? One of the reasons why I, I really, I enjoyed Hannah Mikoji, but it's not the kind of thing that I'm going to keep going back to, because that kind of eye split you choose, I find extraordinarily tense. That sacrifice of control, knowing that the cards in my hand aren't cards that I get to play, but rather cards I just get to offer and hope my opponent makes a mistake or at least a mistake by my reckoning, is the kind of tension that I... I, I it's not that I object to it strongly, it's just not my preferred version. Real-time games, though, that's the kind of tension I like. Especially since uh, I'm of the opinion that misplays are interesting and you should play faster, which I should point out, this has been invo uh, invoked a number of times on the guild. This is not a quote that I coined, this is from my friend Woogie, so we believe in attribution here at So Very Wrong About Games. Woogie is the author of that particular quote. Anyway, Vengeance Roll and Fight is a marvelous game. I love the puzzle after the frantic real-time phase of trying to activate your abilities. That is one of the things that it captures very, very well for the original game of Vengeance. It looks so simple. You just have this pool of actions you get to do, but figuring out how to navigate the den and kill as many thugs or kill the right thugs in the process is a great little tactical puzzle. It's almost evocative of skirmish-type games, which, as people know, is also another type of game that I enjoy doing. Vengeance Roll and Fight is a wonderful game. As I say, it is my preferred of a couple of... Uh, of genres, but again, some people just don't like real-time games, and that's something that every one of us has to live with. It's the cross we have to bear. And that is Vengeance, Roll and Fight by Gordon Kalea, Norley Lubbers, and David Tertze. Finally for me, played some more Spirit Island, and there's a good news, bad news situation here. I'm going to be talking a lot less about Spirit Island on this podcast because I play it all the time. It is very difficult to decide to play games that are not Spirit Island when Spirit Island exists. But the good news is that I'll be talking a lot more about Spirit Island overall because of a new show that we've got for Patreon subscribers called Sizzler, which is exclusively devoted to Spirit Island. So if you're at all interested, go check that out on your custom feeds. Anyway, more Spirit Island to be heard about elsewhere. And those are the games we played this week. Now, 
onto the news and why it doesn't matter. Mark, that was a very interesting name of a game. The bit of news I have is just a name because I find these names very interesting. How about this? The Pirate Republic, the Africa Gambit. That's such a great name. That's a pretty good name. That's a good name. I, I'm a little bit tired of, uh, very much like the video game reviewer Yahtzee, I'm a little bit tired of X colon Y titling conventions, though. All the colons. <laughs> <laughs> a minor emendation or correction or perhaps update from previous comments on the podcast. Walker has very reasonably been pointing out the past couple of times we've talked about Guards of Atlantis 2, still on crowdfunding, by the way, for its excellent reprint, one of the best games of the past 10 years, that Guards of Atlantis 2 should really credit the artist on BoardGameGeek. However, the author, Artem Nichiporov, pointed out on social media that he has been hassling the artist to get a BoardGameGeek account so that the BoardGameGeek entry can credit the artists involved. So it is not the fault of the publisher or the designer, but merely because the artist doesn't want to get registered, which is, of course, their prerogative. And so now that we know that additional information, as well as you do, we can rest confident that Artie is going to give credit where credit is due wherever possible. Mark, do you have any experience with Nine Tiles, the board game? Oh, well, no, not those Nine Tiles. It's an oink, oink game called Nine Tiles. I was hoping you had some interest because it sounded like a little bit like the mirroring of Mary King. So, But this one is Chainsaw Man, Nine uh, Tiles board game. I, uh, so, okay. Yes. Oh, yes. Oh, the Chainsaw Man? The Chainsaw Man, the anime. Okay. And manga, of course. In in manga and anime. Uh, is going to be having their own Nine Tiles board game coming from Oink. Okay, so Oink. Is this the first time Oink has worked with licensees? I, I don't want to say because I don't write. As because, far as I know. That because I've Oink's of, because these tiny, cute little boxes, very minimalistic, very inexpensive, churning out a whole bunch of, of different sort of wacky... Games all very much in the Japanese aesthetic of game design. From what I heard, it plays a little bit like the mirroring. I'm not, I'm, I have no experience with nine tiles board games either, but you're doing a bunch of different abilities to get a picture of nine tiles all over the, the same side. Okay. Chainsaw Man. Chainsaw Man. Chainsaw Man. All right. <laughs> <laughs> a bit of a summer PSA here. Spring has fully sprung. We here at Swag are being very seasonal here. And I just want to note, friends don't let friends play board games with cards outside. Yeah, don't do that. I know it's tempting. Look, I know it's tempting. We're starting to get invitations to various cottages. Apparently everyone in Ontario has a cottage. Uh, I do not have nearly enough means to have two households. But, you know, there's the cottage. There's the cabin. Sometimes people refer to that. There's the chalet. There's all kinds of different regional variations. The summer this. home. The summer home, exactly. But as this is happening, and as the weather clears, people with porches, people with gazebos, people with verandas, what have you, the temptation to play outside is there. I am willing to experience the outdoors. I love going on walks. I even like playing the occasional board game outside, but only if there are no cards involved. Your gigamic games, your hanabi with tiles, your hive, the nice chunky bakelite things, anything with lots of wood, maybe even sometimes your thicker lacquered tiles, or sometimes cardboard, but rarely, but no cards. Not, you think Mark, the Mark, wind's not going to take them, but the wind is going to take them. And the, that's... the problem is the cardboard, it might go off the table. And you know where that cardboard's yeah. going to go? Right between the planks of your deck. Yeah. Gone. Yeah, you're right. You're right. 
it's just some people love to do it. I just, ah. the problem isn't even, and let me just be perfectly clear. The problem isn't that I'm worried about my precious cards being destroyed. The problem is that I'm constantly nervous when playing or manipulating any component that the wind is going to disrupt the game state and then we're not going to be able to continue play. That's my concern. Anyway, that is your summer PSA. And then finally for me, I am super excited about this game. I think this game has already shot up to the top of my most anticipated for 2024. Night Witches. Because I had heard about this from the social media of David Thompson for a while, that David Thompson and Liz Davidson of Beyond Solitaire have been collaborating on a game of the Night Witches, that is to say the 580th Night Bomber Regiment during the Second World War, which was a Soviet group of uh, fighter-bomber pilots who were exclusively women. They were called the Night Witches because they had the tactic of cutting their engines and just going in gliding uh, as they approached the target, and so all the Germans could hear was sort of a... Uh, a sort of a high-pitched shriek, which they associated somehow with broomsticks anyway. So they were called the Night Witches, a title which they then claimed. And my excitement shot up to 11 when I saw that the title had been picked up by Fort Circle Games, publishers of Votes for Women and Shores of Tripoli. And they are absolutely raising the bar on historical game publishing. And so I was already excited when David Thompson was involved. I got more excited when uh, I, I learned that Liz Davidson was involved. And now that Fort Circle Games is going to be published, I am absolutely over the moon, excited. There had previously been a most excellent role-playing game by Jason Morningstar at Bully Pulpit Games about the Night Witches called, appropriately enough, Night Witches. And that's really interesting if you're at all interested in the game masterless kind of narrative thing. And uh, I just, I really can't wait. And that's the news and why it doesn't matter. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Next up is our main review, which is Darwin's Journey. Darwin's Journey was designed by Simone Luciani and Nestore Mangioni. It was crowdfunded 17 years ago and fulfilled this year by Thundergriff Games. The design pedigree of these two gentlemen is rather extensive because they both fall squarely into the group of designers that I somewhat jokingly call the Italian Masters. The work of the Italian masters tends to be rather consistent across games, and indeed I'll be drawing comparisons between several other games of that oeuvre, and they tend to co-design with each other, uh, tending to swap off. So, in point of fact, Luciani and Mangioni had designed a game together before, namely 2018's Newton. Uh, and as far as Mangioni is concerned, he co-designed Autobahn, which was one of our favorite games of last year with Fabio Lopiano. He's also the co-designer of next year's The Last Spell, which has made me strangely more interested in The Last... I didn't think The Last Spell needed a board game implementation, but if Mangioni's involved, I guess that makes me slightly more interested. Uh, and of course, Simone Luciani is... Uh, his output is probably amongst the favorite of uh, the Italian masters here on this podcast. He is probably best known for a lot of the work that he co-designed with Daniele Tashini namely 2012's Tolkien, 2015's Voyages of Marco Polo, and Council of Four in the same year, as well as 2022's Toledum. And he also co-designed, along with Tommaso Battista, what, probably my favorite game of all time of the Italian Masters of Eva, which is to say Barrage. So, Walker, why don't you give us an unhelpful summary about what one does in Darwin's Journey? Well, you're on sort of like a gourmet extravaganza <laughs> food tour, Mark. <laughs> 
no, you're not. And you're going to get taste of all of the Galapagos Islands. You think we're eating these onto things? your plate? Oh yes. Okay. They're very delectable. A little bit of tortoise here. Yeah. Sure. A little bit of dodo over here. Yep. A, a lot of, of dodo. Little, yeah. A little bit of uh, you know ginkgos. Some trilobite looking we things. A, we have a nice you know buffet. Okay. It's you know a little bit of a la carte you know in the morning. What about the shells? Are we eating the shells too? Uh, well, they become shells for a reason, Mark. They used to be something, and now they're shells. Okay. And then we publish restaurant reviews. Is well, this... slash menus, right? Okay, you know, come to the Galapagos, <laughs> leave full. <laughs> so, uh, Darwin's journey. So, what Darwin's journey is is a a worker placement. I just can't. I just can't. <laughs> well, no, them- thematically. Before we get to the mechanism, just thematically, this is a classic Euro style. Well, there was this famous historical figure who did things. You will be following along with him. You're not doing the things he's doing. You're just kind of trailing behind and picking up his sloppy seconds while doing boat racing. Kind of. So yes, like I said, is a worker placement. You have fancy workers that have to go to the fancy places. <laughs> it's all very fancy. You don't even know. And there, there's one mini game. I don't want to say they're all mini games, but it's very straightforward actions. Yes. You're either moving your explorer or adventurer, or you're moving your boat. And then all sorts of different combos and other things arise. So, yeah. So there are these these fundamental actions that the game starts with. And in Darwin's journey over the course of things, new actions start getting opened up at a somewhat haphazard rate. It depends a little bit on the table's mood. It depends a little bit on the specific table setup. And these actions are all various permutations of the basic things that you're going to be doing. Now, notionally, the thematic hook, and, and where a lot of your points probably will come from in a successful game, I say probably, relate to collecting specimens and then publishing papers about those specimens, or, sorry, delivering them to museums. I, I naturally reparse it as a sort of more academic bent, but of course, in the 19th century, it was less about publishing academic papers and more about delivering them to museums, so fine. And the ones that you collect during a turn should reflect what the goal of that turn is. There's goals every turn, and you can sort of manipulate your round to sort of achieve that while doing your specimen collecting. I have a question for you, Walker. Do you think I should be coy, or do you think I should lay all my cards out on the table? Put them all out, Mark. Okay. So this is uh, a game that I thoroughly enjoy, but it's very similar to Barrage and not nearly as good, as far as I'm concerned. So, let, well, let's talk about that. So those those round goals that you have. Many, many a Euro game, I think, you know, from Terra Mystica on down, have goals that say, well, every time this round, you, I mean, hell, Lacrimosa did the same thing. Every time this round you do this particular kind of thing, you'll get a bonus. Or at the end of this round, for every X you have, you'll get some number of points, right? And the way that Darwin's Journey does that is more or less identical to the way that it's done in Barrage. The salient difference is, and I realize this may not be where you wanted to go immediately, but it's it's where we're headed, is the boat. Yes, I think it's this one aspect of the game, yes. Yes. So when it comes to, well, you, you identified it yourself. There are, there are more or less, I would say, three-ish fundamental kinds of actions in terms of aggressively pursuing your own success. And then there are some other things that I think you correctly identified as almost minigames. Make no mistake, I really like those minigames, and I think they hang together with the rest of the design really well, and we'll get to them in turn. But fundamentally, moving your explorer, I like that's fine. There's an element of jumping over other pe- other people's players, etc. We'll go into more details about this. But the boat movement, I find it incredibly dull. 
you do it because you have to, right? I'm not saying it's pointless. It's in quite in fact quite consequential for two reasons. Number one, it's how you get new explorers out on the board. And number two, you'll take significant point bonus penalties if you haven't caught up. Well, I'm, I'm wondering if that is the point. I'm wondering if you are to make a sacrifice of an action sure. in order to move your boat. Oh, yeah, that's and totally the, how And it works. the timing of when to make that sacrifice or the different workarounds, like you're going to do something else, because there's lots of different places where you can move your boat. So you can do another action and it allows you to move your boat slightly. So I'm wondering if this all sort of works into the wash somehow. Yeah, it might. Um, the timing isn't particularly interesting because... When you're moving adventurers, you care very much about the timing because you jump over where other people's adventurers or explorers are. So if there's a sample you really want to get, if you really want to scope out that dodo, you need to get there before somebody else does because somebody else can go get the dodo later, sure, but only after that person has left. True, but that's what I mean about the timing. It's not the timing of actually moving the boat. Right. It's the timing of sacrificing the movement of something else in order to move your boat. Right, so move your boat at the end. <laughs> Maybe. Every... Every game of Jarwin's Journey where I've done reasonably well, I've the the boat has been an afterthought. <laughs> like there's no way to make moving the boat a solid priority. Like why would you bother going there first? Why would you bother making that your 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 immediate like no one's fighting over those boat spaces because they know they can get to them later. And there are uh, so ultimately the boat movement is mostly perfunctory, which is fine. Not everything in a game needs to be stellar. And as I said, Darwin's Journey is a is a very good game that I'd happily play again. But contrast that same function, that exact same function, as it exists in Barrage. In Barrage, it's the power track. It's how much power you have generated over the course of, of that round determines, number one, uh, where your bonuses are, namely whether you take a penalty for the bonuses for that round, and number two, your income for the coming round. So that alone, the fact that it, it, it factors into income already makes it more consequential. And there's a strategy of producing no power. There's a strategy of producing lots of power. And furthermore, it's arguably one of the two primary foci of the game. Producing power and the other focus is building buildings. Sometimes doesn't end to itself. Sometimes just produce power. Like the power track to barrage is central to the experience of the game. No one ever generates power. Uh, I guess. Uh, all right. I just uh, I'll go generate power now. The boat, on the other hand, for Darwin's journey, feels superfluous and not fun to do. It's. I agree. But, okay. But it's such a minor part of the game. Where, like you said, the, sure. the barrage part is is a major part of the game. And the one in Barrage, sometimes you have no control over it. You know, you, really? some, well, someone could steal your water or steal a spot. That's the, or, that's the entire game. <laughs> I know. I agree with that. But I mean, whereas the boat movement, you have a little bit more control about how far you're going. Anyway. Right. It's just, too much it's, it. it's, a, it's, it's a central action of the game. It's a central part of getting enough, a uh, uh, central part of, of the end game's uh, scoring. If you care about those, sorry, end of round scoring. If you care about those bonuses in Turbine's Journey. And it just feels so unsatisfying. There's just no element of tension about when it happens or how. Just get it done. I'll give you just one extreme example. The one game I played, I had a special character ability. We'll probably get into more on that later. That let me just immediately teleport my boat to wherever the beagle happened to be. So I ignored boat movement for the first four rounds of the game. And I just didn't do it at all. That game was the most fun I've ever had with Darwin's Journey because I just didn't have to... Everyone else having to, like, spend their workers is like, I guess I'll move up my boat. It's like, eh, I'll just forget about it. Then at the end of the game, it's like, whoop, 
<laughs> the other problem could be is you're trying to compare it too much to the barrage because it is slightly similar, but it's not a reach. I, is, no, is no, it's completely exactly. not consequential. Have you not had you not ever played barrage before? You might not have as much of a problem with the boat movement. I would still find it uninteresting, but the problem is is that I've seen it been done. That same idea, that same notion of a tr- competitive track that will determine what penalties you have and that you have to bother climbing up. I, I, I as I say. This isn't a glaring problem. It's just a glaring deficiency when compared to a superior version. And so given the existence of Barrage, you said yourself last week that you were trying to become more critical. And from my perspective, in a universe where Barrage exists, I don't see a compelling reason to play Darwin's Journey. So let's oh, get just it. on that one part. Wow. That is un- a minor part of the that, game. That is sure. an example. All right. In in Barrage, there's one sometimes of the first, where you well, have... Well, hold on, hold on, hold on. One of the first things you pointed out about scoring in the context of Darwin's Journey was the end round bonuses, and they do tend to be rather consequential. And so you can't you can't go back and forth and say that it's either that it's consequential with respect to that element, and then it's inconsequential because it's driven by the boat. Oh, it's it's one of the same. It's the same level of consequence. Uh, the, the penalties aren't that huge. The penalties are big and get bigger as the game goes on. Well, move your boat then. <laughs> and here we are. And here we are. Back to the boat. I'm saying, right. in, in, but in Barrage, there's, I find there's a lot of times where you just have nothing to do. Really? And I never had that problem in, in Darwin's. Anyway, let's not. Fair enough. I mean, Barrage, well, Barrage is, is, is tighter, right? It, it yes. more focuses on that track, which yes. I guess is both, a, I'll, I'll concede that. It's kind of a double-edged sword. If you get outmaneuvered, then you're kind of in trouble. There is more player interaction, there's more competition over scarce resources in Barrage than there is in Darwin's Journey, and that is purely a matter of taste. I like my worker placement games a little tighter, a little bit more cutthroat, so this this might be another version of the perpetual Agricola versus Caverna debate about how tight you want these things to be. Fair enough. Because also in, in Darwin's Journey, you never locked out of, of the basic worker spots. There's all sorts of... Rules. I don't want to say rules because it makes it sound complicated, but there's right. not. Every one of the major uh, actions has a large spot where any number of people can do, and then the actions get progressively better, but only one person can take those progressively better actions. Yes. And then there's very, and they're all color coded, and all your workers have certain seals. So there's this very interesting aspect of building up your workers to have like different skills, and you can start doing the more advanced actions. And you also have crew cards that you have to fulfill, and they give you bonus actions as well. I'm not a huge fan in the uh, early parts of Darwin's Journey, especially like rounds one and two, of how expensive it is to go to the same action that somebody else has already taken. So you start the game with four money, and that more or less puts puts certain kinds of actions out of economical reach. You can do it, and I'm talking about unlocking the new spaces. These are the lens actions. But number one, there might not be any actions that you can afford, and generally speaking, if you can't afford any of them, it will cost all your money. Sometimes that might be a clever move, but that's far too bold for a conservative penny pincher like me. So as a consequence, it will cost you half your starting money to go to a space where, uh, or, where someone is. Or if you're playing with fewer than four players, four players being the maximum player count, the the penalties the, the penalty opens up because you have to pay money not just to go to the same space that somebody else has been, but to any space next to where somebody else has been, which can get pretty significant, especially if you're the third player. Yeah, the, the difference between three and four players is ridiculous. Yeah, I strongly prefer it with four. The third player basically is in a position where 
I feel like the third player's options are considerably constrained uh, in a three-player game when compared to a four-player game where you can go to all... There's much better options available for the fourth player there. And I like there are some actions that don't give you any direct benefit, but will get you some money back, like getting more objectives or... Oh, you got to get those objectives, yeah. Or um, or changing the turn order, because like we sure. just talked about, the turn order is very consequential. Yes. And in, in some worker placement games, that's all you're doing. You spend one of your workers, and all it does is change the, oh, the turn it, order. In this one, at least you get a kickback of some Sure. Money. It's not it's not uncommon for, no. for there to be an additional Benny there. Yeah. And yeah, the two bucks are nice. And No, but this frequently comes up. It's like, oh, you're the third player, and the third player looks there and says, there's nowhere I can go without spending a whole bunch of money. It's like, well, you can fix the turn order. It's like, great. Then that's basically saying that the third player gets one fewer action in the first round of the game. Which ain't hot, not so, at all. So let's go back to the worker upgrading because this is this is kind of neat. Yeah, because on top of that, as you advance, it's very much like a Great Western Trail. You are unlocking. There's also a, like a bar of extra actions in all the basic actions. As you go up, you're going to get even more stuff you get to do and victory points, much like Great Western Trail. Yeah, there's two areas of great scarcity in Darwin's Journey. One of them is the samples. You got to get those samples, and it can be very very difficult to get a sample that uh, that somebody else has before they're able to profit from it. And then there are the seals. There are seals that come in different colors. You might think, oh, well, there's this tableau of 12 different seals at the top of every round. There's going to be enough for everybody. No, (laughs) there's not going to be enough of the color that you want. Almost guaranteed. And so you have to snatch those up. And upgrading workers is no joke because not only does it give the workers eventually more power in doing their actions, but it lets them go to spaces that other people can't. And knowing that you have a worker that can go to a space nobody else can gives you such flexibility. There was a particular case I remember where there was a very powerful worker space that had been unlocked, but I knew that everyone earlier in turn order uh, from me didn't have the requisite seals, so I could just leave it empty knowing that I, I could go there whenever I wanted, and that was marvelous. But then they're also just worth flat points. Uh, so upgrading your workers is absolutely a, a, a key part of what's going on. The key part are the objectives, because the objectives unlock a bunch of very essential parts of the game as well. One, like we just said, because money's tight and seals get expensive, so there's an objective bonus that makes those seals cost you nothing. And there's also one that takes away the penalty of placing workers, which is the the penalty, which is also very important as well. So the initial draft of those uh, objectives at the beginning of the game is very consequential, and being able to get to those early as soon as they come out at the beginning of the turn and knowing which ones you can do also very important because you're doing it to get new special powers and or just uh other abilities over the course of the game i find that aspect of darwin's journey much more refreshing than the standard form of recipe fulfillment yeah some of them you might do just for flat points sure but they don't even feel like recipe fulfillment because they key off of a whole bunch of different things. Like this one wants you to have two birds and a couple lenses. This one wants you to have exhausted a stack of letters and some other weird thing. So the they're all over the map. And, and none of them cost. They just have that much stuff. Precisely. You don't pay anything for it. And it's the significant opportunity cost for pursuing the objective is usually just placing the worker and wasting the time to do that because your worker placement actions feel so essential. I actually really like the the objective system. There's also this idea that if you pick up a third objective before you've accomplished any of the two, what you do is you slot an objective somewhere and you don't get the benefit yet and you can still complete that objective. You just can't claim a different Benny when you achieve it. So there's this interesting opportunity cost that feels significant but not overpowering. I Everything about the objectives I quite enjoy in Darwin's Journey. Just going to talk a little bit more about because we've talked about delivering this, like collecting and delivering the specimens, and it is 
I would say the most complicated part of the game because the game's fairly simple. It's like it's a whole bunch of really simple things. Yes. So this one and and the timing is very important in this particular action because you have to collect the specimen and then you have to be the first to the museum to sort of write a paper about it. So getting it and seeing who else has those and making sure because the, the timing is very essential because you can do two at a time, but you might have to go early because someone has collected the same specimen and you don't want to risk them getting there first because at the beginning of the game, it's a huge source of income and late game, it's a huge source of points. And it's sort of this like grid of things. That's one part that I find a little bit unsatisfying visually. This is a minor nitpick. I don't like it when a significant aspect of victory of a game is represented very, very small on the game board. And indeed, when you publish papers, you acquire these books. There's a book track. And that, that can be worth massive amount of points at in-game scoring. It might even be the, the single largest contributor to your victory. And that's fine. And you can indeed, it's thematically appropriate. It's keyed into this idea of going around and collecting samples and then bringing them to museums. That's all cool. The problem is, is it's very, very small and it's kind of tucked away in the middle of the board. And I, I, I prefer it when things like that are given visual pride of place. As I say, very minor objection. And then let's talk about the, the one, I only think there's one mini game, and that's the correspondence. Sure. Uh, you take this action and you pull some envelopes off your board. As you uh, empty them, you're going to get a benefit and you put them on these random bonuses that you're going to get at the end of Famous each, Europeans, no doubt. At the end of each round. And I like it because of the fact that you only lose the envelopes off of those if you win. So if you just sort of stay in second place the whole time, you're constantly getting benefits and you don't have to go back to that action ever again. Yeah. It's a weird, it's a weird aspect of if nobody fights you for it, you're going to be reaping tremendous dividends. But if people do fight you for it, well, then you have to hope that you're getting benefits from other areas, right? If it's, it's one of those kinds of situations in a Euro where if it's, neglected by three players and one person takes advantage of it, they are going to rake it in hand over fist just based on how the scoring system works. Similarly, if two people enter into an uneasy equilibrium, they too can start profiting a great deal. Once people actually start fighting you for it, well, then it gets complicated. Now, these are some of the things that get randomized over the course of the game. And I do actually appreciate being able to go and, and try to find out those good deals because everyone else has their their eyes on the prize, as it were. Yeah, the scoring system really, it's weird. I can't tell if I like the fact that it's a little counterintuitive as to how many dividends you're going to get from early placement, or if I find that that's a shortcoming. It's definitely not transparent. Some people find it a little obtuse and they, they, they underestimate the value of those actions, but there you have it. So there's a part, we talked about unlocking action spaces. And so you go to this spot and you pay a fairly large amount of money and oh, yeah. you get to put one of your lenses, lenses on these advanced spaces. And it's not necessarily only your space, but if someone else goes to it, it gets you some money. Yeah, and but it, most of the time... Yeah, I was about to say, I don't really, I didn't really find that that really yeah, paid off. It's not really a big deal for two reasons. Number one, often when you unlock the space, you do it just because you get to do the action at the instant you unlock it. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. Like, because the, sometimes the... The only way you can take that action is if you have like six green seals and and, <laughs> and, and two purple ones. And you know very well you're never going to have that during the game, yeah. but you can unlock that space. And just like you said, you get to do that action the one time that you unlocked right. it without having the prerequisites and, 
And yeah. sometimes it gets you a huge benefit. And sometimes that one time is enough. And generally speaking, insofar as you care about it being activated many times in the future, you probably choose an action space that you have a worker that can go there, as per my previous example. And so in that case, you know, somebody else going there and you pocketing a dollar from the bank, even though money is tight, is usually not worth it. So icons aplenty, I have written here. But there are some dubious choices. Like we said, there are, there are like four, ba- three basic actions. Yeah. And, and those icons are riddled throughout the board. So those are fairly easy. But sometimes there's smaller symbols like like an infinity, infinity symbol or a plus one or a minus one. Or the rotating arrows. Or, or, and sometimes yeah. it's, it's not clear. Does that mean it's worth more actions or worth more money or, or, or less money? But anyway. The biggest offender is on the seals action where if you have a highly upgraded worker, you get an extra seal. But if you have a maximally upgraded worker, you then get a discount. But the problem is the numbers are printed in mostly the same way. And so people got very confused, even when we were looking at it, trying to parse after we knew what the effects were, trying to figure out how the iconography got us to that point. Anyway, there are a number of of little examples like that. And the setup is not nothing. It's pretty extensive, yes. And I would really wish that they just because they the rule book comes with uh, a recommended recommended first, game, first yeah. game, and I don't see understand why they didn't just print that on the board because you could still have tiles that have the exact same things that are printed on the board and they'll cover it up anyway. But why not just print the recommended on the board so you can put it out and start playing immediately? Odd choice. And then there's that egregious part in the rule book, which I find awful. It, it, just says, it says, oh, there are, you know, there are four different phases of the game and it's going to go for five rounds, full stop. And then it says actions. Now it's like, is, is that one of, one of the phases of the game? I, I, I'm not sure. There was no number. There was no. No, no, no. It doesn't. It, it says, it, it, it says, no, no. What, it says action phase. It's header. No, no phase. Just actions. Are you sure? 100%. Okay, I apologize. So it doesn't list all of different phases and and anyway. So I found it odd. There's no quick ref that that has, you know, all of the phases listed anything like that. Yeah, and the, and the reference sheet for icons is incomplete. It only gives you some of them and on the other the rest of the reference booklet it doesn't mention it. So there's no unified reference work for iconography. It's unfortunate. Then we get to final scoring. And a lot of it is the usual things. There's these temporary seals that you might have. They're worth points. And a lot of the objective spaces that you filled up are for end game points for some reason. I don't know why you don't score them during the game. But then there's the 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 main points that we've talked about. You were you acquired a bunch of books by acquiring uh, samples and then writing papers about them. And then depending on how many rows of these samples that were completed... That you add two to that, and that is going to be what's multiplied by how far you got on the track. And that could be a huge amount of points. Yeah, at a minimum, it's going to be multiplied by two, and it might be max, uh, maximally up, up, uh, multiplied by around six. Uh, I found the floor is about four, and so it is indeed very consequential. But again, in a Euro game, in the classical medium-heavy tradition, uh, medium-to-medium-heavy, rather, in the Italian Masters tradition with a lot of stuff going on and a lot of different ways to get points, I do appreciate that there's at least one thing you can point to and say, well, a lot of points are going to come from this, especially when it is thematically appropriate. And I liked how in the in the in all the games we played, it worked out differently. Like, in a few of the games, the, the track filled up completely, and it was like the maximum multiplier. And in other games, it hardly filled up at all. I thought it was very... Nice that games played differently. Real time update here. Ooh. 
Here's the section that Walker found offensive in the rulebook. It says, Round Structure. Each of the game's five rounds consists of four phases completed in order. And then it says, Action Phase. Fine. (laughs) I see where you're coming from. And to be fair, my view that it's kind of okay is the minority view amongst our table. I just wanted, I, I, I just... I, I am going to refer back to the deluxe rule book because I found the one that is online is incomplete. So I, I'm going to double check when we're done. All right, we're going to have, we a, follow, we're gonna have a follow-up we're on this next week, next week. Uh, just to make absolutely sure. Now, talking about games being different every time, there are tons of things that are going to make that happen. As in all of those advanced actions that we talked about are are different tiles that are going to be mixed up. There are there's pretty well twelve of everything. Yes. Some are different, but relatively there are twelve, and you're only taking about six. So there's the action tiles. There's the correspondence tiles, the, t- the ones that we talked about where you're putting envelopes. There's the beagle goal tiles, the one we talked about that uh, score at the end of every round. The crew cards that we talked about, where if you get certain workers with the right combination of seals, they give you bonus things they're going to be different every time and then just the random things like every other game they're going to come from piles in a different order like the the objectives that we've talked about the specimens that you have to collect populate the map differently and like mark said uh the wax seals there's never enough (laughs) but sometimes there's none of a certain color and that completely changes the game up sometimes it's true I, I will say, though, as much as I appreciate the variety of different action spaces and different correspondences and things like that, I think this is an excellent example of what Charlie Thiel has been writing about recently, whereby we talk about variable setup and confuse it for replay value. I think that the replay value in Darwin's journey comes with the core mechanisms and not of the variable setup, because you might have an action space or a character card that really helps you with boats, and so in that game, you do better in boats or you use it as a crutch for lesser boat actions. Or in the next game, it might not be boats, it might be adventure or movement, and so instead it's the same. I mean, at the end of the day, even though the tiles and the action spaces more or less mix up, it's still the same fundamental combination of the same core elements. And whether I find a dodo on the first island, or whether I find a trilobite on the first island, it's six of one, half a dozen of the it's other. It's true. But that's what I'm saying. Those are mini parts. But I'm saying, the re- I think the reason why sometimes the the specimen thing filled up and sometimes it didn't was because of the different advanced actions there were. Maybe. More okay, that's fair. Time. That's fair. That could be fair. Reasonable. And then the, the at least the deluxe version, I'm not sure what the retail version comes with. There was a bunch of there's a bunch of mini expansions as well. So the first game we played, they they recommend you play with a pets. Yes. And they, they give you some extra income at the on the first turn and just they a have, one-time Benny. And a one-time Benny as yeah. well. And then there's it, a, it admirable for a first play. And then there's a pirate. Uh, oh, of expansion a that has another, <laughs> another boat. There's a great ship uh, expansion that gives you player powers, which I found is interesting. And then there's a large expansion called the Fireland expansion, which has a lot to do with time. So a lot of things will cost you time. And then at the end of the game, depending on how much time you've spent, you're going to lose some victory points. I would be happy to try any of these, but quite frankly, as far as the player powers go... You're already building player powers over the course of the seals anyway, so that felt satisfying enough in terms of player differentiation. I haven't, read, I didn't read through many of them. I'm interested to see what what advantages they give you. And I, uh, this being said, I will play Darwin's Journey anytime. I really feel it's the whole package: the uh, the theme, the artwork, the components. 
I think everything is pretty well top notch. It, it flows fairly well. The fact that it's, you know, the, like we said, the actions are fairly basic. There's some t- on certain turns, sometimes there's a bit of a combo, but it's definitely not like a Praga combo yeah, fest. Absolutely. Right. And so it's fairly minimal. And I think it moves fairly quickly. The last game we played, I think, moved very quickly. Everything is fairly clear. And I think we had, uh, we had Chip the third plane and he's usually not very comfortable with heavier games. And I think he caught on very quickly. And so I think this is a game that almost anyone could play. I agree with you that Darwin's Journey has a pro- slightly more approachability than a lot of the other games of the Italian Masters. Like, so even just the works of, uh, Mangioni and Luciani previously, like compared this to Newton, I would have a much easier time introducing people to Darwin's Journey than I would to Newton, I think, based on my recollection of, of having played Newton a couple of times. And that is absolutely an advantage. And I think that it is, you're right, that it is much less cutthroat than a game of Barrage. As it is, I think this is a solid, above-average entry in the field of the Italian Masters, and I would happily play it. But I, where Barrage is available, I will prefer Barrage, and I do get... Uh, it, it satisfies more of my desire for worker placement to be slightly more cutthroat. It satisfies my desire of focus, of of the track being meaningful, of never having to take an action just because. And sometimes I feel like I'm just, for lack of a better term, treading water. When, <laughs> ah, see what I did there? Water boats. Boats are in water, Walker. Yeah. And it's the boats that I find a little boring. And then and the barrage stops the boats, Mark, because it stops the water. It's, it's all very, about very water. It's, it's water all, all the way down. It comes all the way back. With that bit of excellent wordplay, we thank you very much for joining us. For this episode of So Very Wrong About Games, you can find all our information at SoWrongGames.com, including at SoWrongGames.com slash contact, where you can get in touch with us via any number of media. We read everything you send us, and we'll get back to you if we can. Thanks again for having decided to spend some time with us, and we hope to see you again soon. Please do take care. Peace! You've been listening to So Very Wrong About Games, produced by Michael Walker and edited by Mark Bigney. Special thanks goes to What Does It Eat for generously allowing us to use their most excellent song, FOS, as our theme. You can find them at whatdoesiteat.com. You can reach us by email at soverywrongaboutgames at gmail.com or on Twitter at sowronggames. Thanks very much. See you next time. And always, try to be right, but remember you are so very wrong. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.